This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Last Sunday, we went through Judges chapter 8 through 9 as we're in a series in that book, and we saw how this story of a man named Gideon did not end so well. God had used Gideon in some amazing ways, but then Gideon's life really became centered around himself, and that center could not hold. See, God has made us for more than going through life like our life is just a selfie. God has made us to be consumed not with ourselves. God has made us to be consumed with Him. Life is best lived when God is at the center and not us. And as we just kind of heard that from God's Word last week, it seemed like it really struck a chord because I got more feedback than usual on the sermon. And then God used some providential things this week to make it clear that we actually probably should take a brief break from our series in Judges and unpack this idea a little bit more. Because our culture is just so consumed with this idea of a selfie life. Our culture is so consumed with this idea that the way for you to truly know happiness is for you to know what it is to give yourself to self-expression. And yet that's a lie. Um, a selfie life is a life that is headed very fast towards self-destruction. God wants us to live the opposite of a selfie life. He wants us to live a Godward life. The early church fathers had a phrase for what it means to live a Godward life. They called it quorum Deo, which means living before the face of God. And so over the next few Sundays, we are going to go through different scriptures that show us what it means to live before the face of God in everything in our lives. We're calling this series Quorum Deo, living before the face of God. And instead of just going through one book of the Bible, we'll be in different places throughout the next couple Sundays. And then once we get done this series, we'll be in Advent season, which I can't imagine is already only four weeks away. Uh, this year has flown by. And so then we'll do an Advent series, and then we'll pick up judges in the new year. So with that being said, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm not sure what the most amazing thing is that you have ever seen. Sometimes we can see things, and they can have just this profound effect upon us, can't they? Maybe a beautiful sunset comes to your mind, or a moving piece of art, or an incredible performance by a musician or an athlete of some sort. I'll never forget the first time that I saw Angie. For the benefit of the guests, Angie is my wife, and she's fantastic. Uh, I married way up. Um, I'll never forget the first time that I saw her. I'd known her for about a year, but I hadn't really seen her before, if you know what I mean. Uh, I was focused on many different things, and so we were around each other, but I had not been paying attention. But then in September of 2006, as we were walking back to our cars after having taken a college class together, I'm not sure how it happened, but we just started talking about what we were learning from Scripture and how God was moving in our lives. And as I heard her talk about God's Word, as I heard her express her deep desire to be shaped by the Lord, it was like blinders came rolling off my eyes. 
And I was like, where has this woman been? And we talked for several hours standing outside our cars. No, no joke, it actually started to rain. And instead of moving on, we just took out umbrellas and kept on talking. And from that day on, 17 years ago, this past September, my whole life has been radically changed by what I saw. As we begin this series on living before the face of God, where we are going to start is by seeing what it means to see the glory of God. I think sometimes we can settle for just being around God, maybe just knowing a few things about God. But what changes our lives is when we actually see God and the glory of who he is. That's what this man named Isaiah experiences in Isaiah chapter 6. And so as we start this sermon series, Coram Deo, living before the face of God, we're going to start in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, by considering what it means to live captivated by the glory of God. What does it mean to live captivated by the glory of God? Let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Let's bow our heads that God would bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. I want to encourage you actually have a time of prayer between you and God and just ask God to speak to you through what you're about to hear. And now if you would be so kind, could you pray also for me that God would strengthen me to speak in a way that's helpful to you and ultimately glorifying to him. God, thank you for your word, which is faithful and true. Thank you that through it you speak to us. Lord, I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, you who, inspired by your Spirit, these words to be written, would now by your Spirit illuminate them to our hearts. 
Give us eyes to see what you want us to see. Give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. Give us hearts to receive what you want us to receive. We praise Lord God for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. I've got two points for us as we work our way through this text. We're going to see God's glory described. And so what is this glory of God that Isaiah is seeing? And then we're going to see God's glory experienced. How is seeing God's glory affecting Isaiah? And through that, what do we learn about how it is meant to affect us? And so first, God's glory described. We are told that Isaiah's vision came in the year the king Uzziah died. That's not an accidental inclusion, but an important context. King Uzziah reigned over Israel for 52 years, making him one of their longest reigning kings. And he had been one of their most successful kings. He had fought many battles. He had faithfully protected and even expanded Israel's borders. King Uzziah had brought about a time of prosperity that hadn't been seen in Israel since the days of the great kings David and Solomon. And as great as King Uzziah was, he still died. It says in the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. What is being set up right here at the start is this contrast between this great king and the one who is truly the Lord. That word Lord is a translation of a title, Adonai, which means sovereign ruler. What we are meant to see right here at the start is that there is only one truly sovereign ruler. There's only one whose reign will truly never end. There's only one whose glory will truly never fade. Everything in this world has an expiration date on it. It has a greatness that will pass because one day it will be gone and die out just like King Uzziah. I had the privilege of going to Rome a few years ago. Rome that gets called the Eternal City. Rome used to be one of the most powerful cities in the world. It was the center of the greatest empire that history has ever known. And it's a great place to go and visit and to learn about some ancient history. That's all that Rome is right now, mostly. It is mostly just ancient history. It's no longer the center of the world. All of its greatest achievements now lie in ruins, and you can go tour them for a fee, but they will do really nothing to change your life. The glory of that city has faded. But God's glory never fades. God never dies out. He is the only one who is truly eternal. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord who is seated on his throne high and lifted up. In ancient times, the higher the throne, the more prestigious the person in power. Friends, there is no throne that is higher than God's because there is no one who is greater than the Lord. Isaiah will go on to write in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. He'll say this, speaking in the voice of God. God says, the heavens are my throne, and the earth is my footstool. When was the last time you thought about how big the earth is? I brought a visual aid to help us think about this. Can we put up the slide of the earth? Think about how big the earth is. All those mountains, 
all those seeds, the depths of which we haven't even begun to, to get to the bottom of. The atmosphere, it's the massive nature of our planet. God, God says that's his footstool. That, 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 that's where he puts his feet up. He says the earth is his footstool and the heavens are his throne. Not heavens in the sense of the place we go after we die, but heavens in the sense of the universe, the stars, the planets. You think the earth is big. Friends, the earth is but a small planet in the massive universe. At the center of our galaxy is the sun. The earth is 12,742 kilometers in diameter, which is, again, really big. The sun, 1.3 million kilometers in diameter diameter. We have a slide comparing the sun to the earth. And so there's the earth, that little one, all the way to the right there, and there's the sun compared to it. You could fit 960,000 earths inside the sun. If the earth was a golf ball and the sun a school bus, you could fill up that entire school bus from top to bottom with all those golf balls. That's a lot of golf balls. The sun is massive. But the sun is nothing compared to the biggest star in the universe, or at least the biggest star that we know of at this point. The biggest star in the universe is Canis Majoris. The sun is 1.3 million kilometers in diameter. Canis Majoris is 1.975 billion kilometers in diameter. We have a picture of the sun compared to Canis Majoris. You can't, if you look really closely, you, you can't really see the sun at all, can you? Uh, and that's on purpose, because if you were to take a white Sharpie and put it on that black dot, uh, backdrop, the tip of that white Sharpie would be out of proportion. It would be too big of the sun compared to Canis Majoris. We actually have a slide that compares a little bit better. There, there's the sun. There's the sun compared to Canis Majoris. The sun is massive. Then what word do you use to describe that? This is where language starts to fail because the massiveness, which isn't even a word, but the massiveness of the universe, it just defies our comprehension. And now think of this. Canis Majoris is but one star in a universe full of trillions of stars. Here's a picture that we have, the most comprehensive view of the galaxy at this point. You see all the way down there at the left, that's Canis Majoris, just in the rest of the galaxy. How massive are the heavens? And the heavens are God's throne. They are where God sits and rules with an unparalleled power. You see, God is so glorious that his throne cannot be contained by any court. His reign cannot be marked by any calendar. His royalty cannot be rivaled by any ruler. He is the Lord, high and exalted. And Isaiah says that the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of a robe is the long part that hung down behind a king. And the longer the robe, the more important the king. God's robe filled up the whole temple. There was not one square inch that was left untouched by his greatness. And above his throne flew these seraphim. 
and seraphim are described in the book of Revelation as these powerful angels who, who look like a mix between a lion and an eagle. Two animals that represent royalty and majesty. And the seraphim have incredible power. In 1 Chronicles 21, one angel kills 185,000 men without even breaking a sweat. And as great as these beings are, they are not great enough to be allowed to look on the glory of God's presence. They have to fly with two wings and use another pair of wings to hide their eyes because they are not worthy to look upon the glory of God. And that with other two wings, they have to cover their feet. Feet were a sign of their creatureliness. That they had to cover themselves before God. And they exist for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to sing their song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we hear that word, holy, we might think of moral purity or perfection. Those things are certainly a part of holiness, but they do not capture the whole substance of the word. The word holy means to cut or to separate. And so to say that God is holy is to say that he is separate from us. Or to say that he is a cut above us. And isn't there just a certain awe we feel when we see someone who's just so much better at something than we are? When they're just a, a cut above us in many ways? Sometimes when I get done my midweek Bible study with the Phillies, I'll stick around and I'll just watch them take batting practice. And not only do they rarely miss a ball, but almost every single ball is hit, like, out of the park. You know, and I think about that. I was like, man, if I took a swing, first of all, the bullpen coach is actually throwing pretty fast. I probably couldn't even make contact. You know, I'm so aware of how much better they are than me. And several years ago, when I first started my role as their chaplain, um, one of the players wanted to have a conversation with me, but first they had to go play catch. And so they were waiting for their teammate, and their teammate was taking a long time of coming out. And so they said, hey, Rev, why don't we just, like, why don't we play catch together and we can talk as we throw? Um, now, I had never played baseball above Little League, but I figured how hard it can be to go play a game of catch. And so I said, sure, no problem. And so I grab a glove and I start heading out to the field. Now, fortunately, God is merciful and kind. And so the teammate that he was waiting for said, hey, hey, I got it, don't worry. And he came out just in time just to spare me because here's what happens. Here's what I didn't realize is that when professional pitchers say they're going to play catch, what they're doing is stretching out their arm. They're warming up. And so they start to hurl that ball as fast as they possibly can. And because they're not trying to get it in a strike zone, they're throwing it even harder than when they actually pitch. Everyone's throwing that ball at least 95 to 100 miles an hour when they are playing catch. And so God had spared my life. Seeing them reminds me all the time that they are very much a big cut above me. Friends, God is an even bigger cut above us. That word holy gets repeated three times because in the ancient Hebrew language, that's how they emphasize things. They have the luxury of having bold or underline or exclamation points. No, if they really wanted to em emphasize something, they would just repeat it. And we see this happening throughout Scripture. And so when Jesus really wants to make a point, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? He's saying like, hey, what I'm about to say is really, really important. Pay attention. There's only one word in all Scripture that gets repeated three times. God is trying to make a point. 
there's only one word that gets repeated, and it is this word, holy, holy, holy. God has never called wise, wise, wise. He's never called just, just, just. He's never even called love, love, love. God is all those things. But the only thing that gets repeated is that God is holy, holy, holy. The point that is being made is that there is no one and nothing that is more beyond us. There is no one and nothing that is more separate from us. God is exalted beyond anything that we could ever hope to comprehend or that language could possibly convey. His holiness is so great that it says the whole earth is filled with His glory. The glory of God is the manifestation of His holiness. God's holiness is the incomparable perfection of His divine nature, and His glory is the display of that incomparable perfection of God's divine nature. God's glory is His holiness gone public. It is the revelation of the greatness of who He is. The glory of God is that He is the holy, holy, holy God. And encountering the glory of His presence is something that if we are seeing Him, will profoundly shape us. We've seen God's glory described. Now let's consider God's glory experience. God's glory experience. As Isaiah sees the glory of God, there are really three things that happen in Isaiah. Isaiah is convicted by the glory of God. Isaiah is cleansed by the glory of God. And Isaiah is commissioned by the glory of God. And these three things that happen to him are the same three things that should happen to us as we see the glory of this holy, holy God. First, God's glory convicts us. Isaiah sees God's glory. And his immediate response is, woe is me. That word woe is a word that Isaiah would have used many times before as a prophet. That word woe speaks of God's judgment. The prophets were often sent to pronounce God's judgment on others. And so to pronounce woe is to mark someone for death. And so when Isaiah says, woe is me, what he is saying is that I deserve to be marked by death. He says, I am lost. Literally the word in the Hebrew there that's being translated says, I I'm undone. He is completely coming apart at the seams. Why? He tells us why in verse 5. He says, I dwell in the midst. He says, I am a man of a people of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah was the most righteous man in all of Israel. I mean, he was a prophet, a servant of the Lord. His lips had been filled with God's messages. And so you'd expect that his lips would be the most righteous part of him. And yet as he sees the glory of God, he is recognizing that his best deeds are nothing but filthy rags compared to that glory. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you realize you are not dressed appropriately for the occasion? In the college, uh, a friend of mine invited me over to her house for a cocktail party. 
Uh, I had no idea what a cocktail party was. She had just turned 21, so I figured, well, there's just going to be some drinking involved. And I'm like, I don't drink, but I figured I could still go and support my friend. It's the summer, and I knew she had a pool, and so I assumed it was going to be some kind of pool party. Those who are chuckling must know what a cocktail party is. I showed up, and I felt pretty confident in how I was clothed in flip-flops, swim trunks, and a tank top, tank top, you know? Sun's out, gun's out, let's go. But I began to realize that maybe I'd missed something when I pulled up to her house, where I've never been before, and there was a super long driveway, like the length of that wall to like the end of our building. And in this driveway were multiple limousines. When I knocked on the door, it was opened by my friend's mom, who I'd never met before. This is her first impression of me. And her mom was dressed in a full-length gown. I looked behind her, and I saw a room full of people all wearing suits with ties, and there were butlers in tuxedos with white gloves serving cocktails. And that's when I realized that a cocktail party is apparently a very formal thing. I didn't know, but now I will never forget. I've actually never been invited back to another cocktail party, maybe because they've given up on me. Um, I, I felt fine in my clothes before until I came into contact with people who were dressed much better than myself. See, we can feel fine in our own skin. Isaiah thought he was doing fine. But when he came into contact, and when we come into the contact with the glory of God, Friends, the resplendent radiance of God's glory should make us all aware that we're not dressed appropriately. God's glory, his greatness, exposed Isaiah's lack of greatness and showed to Isaiah his real sinfulness. And so he just felt broken before this glorious God. When was the last time that you felt broken before the glory of God? Can it be so easy to excuse our stuff? Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that other person, fill in the blank with whoever you think is worse than you. We so easily feel better about ourselves by judging ourselves against other people. But friends, if we're looking to God, every single one of us should be undone. We might measure up well against others, but we all fall short of his perfection, of his purity, of his holiness. And so if we are ever feeling prideful about how great we are or judgmental of others because we think we are better than they are, then we're not seeing him in the glory of who he is. Truly encountering the glory of God's presence should convict us. It should cut us to the heart. We should be undone but not so that we just stay feeling bad about ourselves. No, God convicts us of our sinfulness so that we might then know the sweetness of the Savior who cleanses us. God's glory convicts us. Oh, but then praise the Lord, God's glory cleanses us. Isaiah is broken over sinfulness, but please notice, God does not leave him there. No, in verse 5, Excuse me, in verse 6, God instructs one of the seraphim to take a burning coal from the altar. 
The altar is the place where sacrifices would be brought in by the high priest once per year to be burned for the forgiveness of people's sins. But this time, it's not a priest coming to the altar. No, it is God sending someone from the altar. This angel comes and he touches Isaiah's lips. Don't miss that detail. In the very place that Isaiah had said he was unclean. In the very place where Isaiah felt the most dirty. That's where God sent the angel to touch him with the Lord's forgiveness. The coal from the fire touches him. and God pronounces over Isaiah two things. He says, one, his guilt is taken away. It's removed. And then two, he says his sin is atoned for. To atone means that someone has paid for it. If God had only taken away his guilt, it would still need to be paid for. If God only paid for it, it would still need to be taken away. And so both happen. And as they do, Isaiah is now cleansed by a mighty and merciful act of God. He is no longer under the judgment of God. He is no longer pronouncing woe upon himself. But now he knows he's been forgiven. He knows his sin has been wiped away, and he knows he's been restored to the Lord. And this act is just a foreshadowing of a far greater act of mercy that would come from the Lord who sent someone to us to bring an even deeper and greater cleansing. Like the angel who brought God's cleansing to Isaiah, God sent Jesus. Jesus came to us to bring God's cleansing to us. In Jesus, our guilt is taken away because it was placed on Him and He bore it away. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For our sake, God made Him to be sin, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin. Friends, here's what we have to understand. What is happening on the cross of Jesus is not a good man dying. No, what is happening at that cross is that the innocent and pure God-man had become our sin. On the cross, our sin, our shame, all the things that we do that make us unclean. All that was put on Jesus. He was charged with the worst parts of us. And this is why on the cross, Jesus is no longer experiencing sweet communion with God the Father. For all eternity, the Father and Son had dwelt in an embrace of eternal love. But as Jesus became our sin, the Father is turned into His judge. And Jesus cries out in despair, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had been forsaken. He had become our lust. He had become our selfishness. He had become our lies. He had become our unfaithfulness and our hard-heartedness and our self-centeredness. The list of our sins goes on and on, and each was placed on Christ. And so what we are seeing on the cross is that the holy judge of the universe is pronouncing 
on Jesus. Woe is you. Jesus takes the full judgment of God that we deserve to experience. He removes our guilt by bearing it on himself and then by paying for it himself. He both bears our guilt and he atones for our sin. For in his last breath, Jesus said, it is he had done all that was necessary to make unclean people clean through faith in Him. This is what the Lord wants to do in our lives. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to touch us. In those places where you feel the deepest sense of shame, I'm not sure today what be, might be making you feel unclean, but what I am sure of today is that there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty sins. Friends, the glory of God, oh, it should break us and convict us of our sinfulness, but not so that we wallow in how bad we are. No, that sweet place of brokenness should lead us to the acceptance of forgiveness that we get in Christ. Being convicted of our sin should make us appreciate the sweetness of our Savior who cleanses us from our sins. Oh, God's glory convicts us. His glory cleanses us. And His glory commissions us. After having this experience, God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah can't help but say, here I am. Send me. Here's how you know something has impacted you. You don't have to. You want to tell others about it. This is just what we do. We become evangelists for things that capture our hearts. We find a great restaurant, and we just have to share with others about that experience. We watch a great show. We just got to tell people, hey, you've got to see this. This is just what we do. We become evangelists for things that capture our hearts. And this is what has happened with Isaiah. As he's encountered the glory of God's presence, as he's been convicted of his sinfulness and then cleansed by the sweetness of the Savior, he then readily steps forward and accepts this commission and says, yes, I will go send me. Notice, he doesn't even know yet where God is sending him to go. He doesn't even know yet what God is sending him to do. But it didn't matter what God was asking. All that matters is that it was God who was asking. See, a Godward life is a life where it's not about me and what I want, but it is, Lord, because of how glorious you are, you're what I want, and so you tell me to go, and I'll say yes, even before I know where we're going. This is the Godward life. Here's my life, Lord. It's yours. Shape me, mold me, guide me, lead me. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. Would you send me? See, friends, this makes a claim on every moment of our lives. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, then there's no such thing as a meaningless moment in your life. There's no such thing as an unimportant decision. No, everything matters because everything in our lives is part of what God wants to do to send us to display his glory to the world. We don't just live. We live a life sent by God. And so listen, this means Christians don't just go and get a job. No, we pray, Lord, where are you sending me? The Christians don't just go and buy houses. No, we pray, Lord, 
where are you wanting to send me? Parents, this means that you don't just get to raise your kids wherever you want. No, those children are people that God has sent you to because he wants them to be, through you, amazed at his glory. That's the culture that we should be creating in our homes as parents. The culture that we should be creating is that we have families who worship the holy, holy, holy God. When we are captured by the glory of this holy, holy, holy God, then Friday night is not just another night to go hang out with our friends. No, it's an opportunity to invest in relationships with people that God is sending us to. And so you step into those spaces knowing that your friend might need a prayer. You step into those spaces knowing that your friend might need an encouragement from God's word, and God has sent you to bring that encouragement into their lives. Maybe they're talking through something in their life, and you realize, oh, they're, they're stepping into something that's actually spiritual, detrimental to them. And God has sent you to the purpose to start asking them some hard questions so they would leave the path that they are on. Maybe God has sent you to some friends or coworkers who aren't Christians. God has sent them, you to them. He has sent you to them because he wants you to invite them to church or is giving you an opportunity to share with them about Jesus. Listen, the point is God's glory is too great to stay between just him and us. No, God can't be contained in a private relationship in our own eyes. No, God wants to explode out of us to others. His glory convicts us, it cleanses us, and it commissions us to go and tell the world how great he is. And friends, in a world that is searching for meaning, in a world that's longing for purpose, in a world that's always trying to find itself, Friends, God's glory is the greatest meaning. God's glory is the ultimate purpose. God's glory is the place in which we actually come to know ourselves. God's glory is not just a set of facts to believe. No, it is a grand vision that is meant to shape everything about our lives. This is the great adventure. This is the life-fulfilling quest. This is what you were made for to see and know and love and worship and share about the holy, holy, holy God whose glory fills the whole earth. And so as we come to a close, friends, I just want to hold out to you the Godward life. This is how we live, Coram Deo, before the face of God. We need to see his glory more and more and more. I'm not sure what needs you came in with today. I'm not sure what burdens you're carrying upon your heart. But here is what you need. Here is what I need. We need to be captivated by the glory of God. We need to see his glory more and more and more. And as a result, we will see our sinfulness more and more and more. We should be convicted of our sinfulness more and more and more. But then through that, we should see our Savior and we should appreciate His cleansing power more and more and more. And from that place of sweet brokenness and yet full acceptance in Christ, we accept our commission. We say, Lord, my life is not my life. It's yours. Here am I. Would you send me? Let's bow our heads and work.